Thank you for joining us for CF on Cyber, the podcast for executives who want to cyberproof their businesses. Today, we're going to discuss some key takeaways from the California Attorney General's proposed CCPA regulations. We're going to hear from Jack Clavy, Joe Swanson, and Steve Blickensturfer. Jack and Joe are attorneys in Carlton Fields' Tampa office. They are both former criminal assistant U.S. attorneys and computer hacking and intellectual property prosecutors. Steve is an attorney and certified information privacy professional in our Miami office. Jack, Joe, and Steve represent companies, executives, and directors in data security and cybersecurity matters. Now, I'll turn it over to Jack. Welcome to CF on Cyber. Thanks, everyone, for joining us today. We're going to talk about highlights of the California Attorney General's proposed CCPA regulations. We've got with us the usual suspects. We've got Joe Swanson from the Tampa office who leads the Cybersecurity and Privacy Practice Group. Joe, welcome. We also have Steve Blickensdurfer from the Miami office who is all things privacy and breach response. So thanks guys for joining us today. Uh, Before we really get started on what is in these regs, Steve, maybe you could give us some background on what these things are. Sure. Thanks, Jack. So the California Consumer Privacy Act passed in June of 2018, and it included a provision that authorized and and required the Attorney General to issue regulations. So what we effectively have here as of October 11th, 2019, are the proposed regulations that the California Attorney General is um, issuing with respect to the implementation of the CCPA. So now when you're thinking, what do I need? What does the CCPA require? Not only are you required to look at the CCPA language itself, but also these regulations. And just a quick side note, the CCPA goes into effect on January 1st, 2020, and the Attorney General will not begin enforcement until July of 2020. Uh, Regardless, it is important, and these the notice that accompanies the proposed regulations make clear that businesses are expected to at least start demonstrating or be in compliance by uh, January 1st. All right, and Joe, uh, what are the next steps here? We have these published regulations, but they're in draft form, essentially. What happens next? Sure, thanks, Jack. The <clears throat> next step is the Attorney General is going to receive written comments from interested parties. Those are due by December 6th of this year. Uh, the Attorney General is also going to hold public hearings in four California cities uh, over the span of three or four days in early December. Uh, and you know, at some point after that, the Attorney General will take those comments in and publish final regulations. All right, thanks, Joe, and, and thanks, Steve. L- let's get to some of these highlights. So we looked at these over the weekend. We got them, I think, late Thursday night. Uh, they were technically published on Friday, the, the 11th. But we looked at them you know, in their entirety, and there's going to be more that gets unpacked as we talk to our clients over the next few weeks about them. But we're going to have some of our initial reactions here. You know, one of the things that I noticed at the outset, right, was there's a real focus on how the notices and the information that are required by the CCPA shall be provided by a business to the customers in a manner that is, quote, unquote, easily understood. Now, we all know how we should write with clarity and privacy policies. Opt-out notices should be written with clarity. But there were two things I noted that I thought are going to be important. They might seem like minor points, but for companies that are complying, I think they're important. First, uh, in you know, consumer notices, right, the right to the notice at collection, uh, the notice of the right to opt out, 
There's particular language in these regs that says these notices must be available in the languages in which the business in its ordinary course provides contracts, disclaimers, sales announcements. All right, and what does that mean in practice? Well, for a lot of businesses that are doing multilingual business, for example, if they have ad circulars or websites in Spanish, they need to have their notices of the right to opt out and similar notices in the Spanish language. So again, now that is going to be clear in the regs if they go into effect that you need to have this multilingual approach. The second is just a reminder that these uh, notices must also be accessible to customers with disabilities. A number of our clients and, and customers who have you know, significant web operations know about compliance with the Americans with Disabilities Act, about website accessibility, and there have been a lot of lawsuits in the past few years about website accessibility. So the teams that are working on CCPA compliance should make sure that they're connected again, simply with the team working on ADA compliance so that there's some understanding of accessibility here. Um, Steve, we've talked a lot with our clients about verifications. Uh, we got a lot of client questions about this. What's going on in these regs about verifications as to who is in fact making certain requests? Sure, so real quick background on verifications and, and the regulations make this very clear. So the verification process is essentially requiring businesses that are responding to CCPA requests to verify that the person making the request is the person's, th that's the person whose personal information the business has. So that when they respond and give the, the particular data sets or you know, execute a deletion action, they are responding to the right person and it's not some fraudulent actor who's going and posing as someone else. That's the verification that we're talking about. Uh, what's, what these regulations make very clear and is what impressed upon me was to remind businesses that the uh, verification obligation doesn't apply to the opt-out of selling personal information and selling is very broadly used in the in the CCPA as the regulator makes note on in the notice of proposed uh, regulations. So the verification is required for the request to know about the personal information the, inf the business collects, discloses and sells, and also applies to the right to the request to delete that personal information. It does not apply, as I said earlier, to the request to opt out. So just to keep that in mind. But here are some top, let's say top four things I took away from the verification discussion that is in the uh, regulations. This is article four in particular. And, and the first one is use what you have. If you're a business, you have personal information, don't go out and start collecting additional personal information to verify that the user is who they're saying they are. If you have um, uh, name, address, uh, email address, and maybe another data set, use a, a combination of that information to verify the personal information, to verify the person, um, and don't go creating more personal information unless you have to. Second, check against, and, and, and what these regulations are helpful for is that they do answer, well, what, how do I verify? What does that mean? And so, the regulations make clear that for a standard request to access or delete, uh, you're looking for reasonable degree of certainty. And what does that mean? Well, as a baseline, it means checking against two pieces of personal information. That's your address, email, 
and then if you want to go be above and beyond something else beyond that the more sensitive the data and this is the third point the more sensitive the data the more stringent the verification process has to be and for that the regs are requiring a reasonably high degree of certainty and what does that mean well helpfully we know that means three pieces of personal information so uh, you can see there's a scale depending on how how much how sensitive the data is that's more the more stringent the verification process will have to be. And the fourth and final point that I wanted to make sure we, we uh, make known is that if a business has a password protected account, which a lot of them do uh, with the consumer, you can verify through that existing authentication process. Um, so businesses uh, could and should look to see what's the process for verifying users already. Does that satisfy what the regulations are discussing with this with essentially uh, checking against two pieces of personal information, that may be enough. You might not need to do anything new other than just making sure it, it works and it's integrated with this new verification process. All right. Well, th thank you for that summary of sort of the highlights of Article 4. Uh, Joe, let's talk now about Article 6 of these new regs, which is probably another bucket where we've had a lot of questions from our clients on financial incentives and what those mean. Sure. Article 6 is about non-discrimination, and one of the core tenets of the CCPA is that uh, a business cannot treat a consumer differently because he or she has exercised a right afforded to them by the CCPA. Uh, it can, however, offer different service levels and, and other treatment for their consumers if that difference in price or service is reasonably related to the value of the consumer's data. And so a good chunk of these proposed regulations addresses that issue. What does it mean to be reasonably related to the value of the consumer's data so that you're not discriminating if you are offering different uh, service levels or prices? And really the key takeaway from this section is your practice cannot be reactive or punitive. Uh, think of it in sort of a traditional tort kind of but-for uh, test. Uh, that's really what these regulations um, illustrate. And so in, the, in Article 6, they provide a couple of examples uh, that are worth looking at uh, in terms of trying to understand what would be uh, okay in the AG's estimation. You know, one example, uh, fairly straightforward, is if a retail store offers discounted prices to consumers who sign up to be on their mailing list, and that consumer can continue to receive discounted prices even after they've made a request to know or to delete their data, then the differing price level is not discriminatory. Um, that, those, those examples are worth looking at. And, and in 999.337, there's also a list of all the different ways in which a business could calculate that difference uh, in, in, in value of the data, uh, and, and I think you know, stay out of the crosshairs of, of the attorney general. And there's, there's eight uh, examples of, of how you would go about calculating that value of the data. For example, it could be the marginal value to the business of the sale, collection, or deletion of a consumer's data or a typical consumer's data. So take a look at, at those examples. But again, the key is make sure your practices are not punitive or reactive. Thanks, Joe. And I think now that we've talked about verifications, and we've talked about these financial uh, incentive offerings. We're going to hit a, a couple of other things that kind of jumped out to us, uh, apart from those two dynamics where we've been getting a lot of questions. Uh, one is section uh, 999.326, which talks kind of simply about this concept of authorized agents. That is a, a consumer who authorizes someone else, 
right? Maybe it's an attorney, maybe it's a business, or maybe it's one of these third-party apps to go out there and submit requests to know or requests to delete on their behalf. We've seen this in the GDPR concept that the automation of this has caused a lot of questions and head scratching. There's some guidance, um, probably not as much as we would have liked to have seen about how to handle these automated requests, but what the reg does allow, right, is if a company gets an authorized agent's request, right, um, they can require, the business can require that the consumer, one, provide the authorized agent written permission, right? So they, they can essentially, I think, the reading of this is that the authorized agent would have to surrender or show to the company this written permission from the consumer to the authorized agent, and that the consumer would verify their own entity directly with the business. And so, yes, there is an authorized agent, and the concept is allowed in the CCPA, but the company can still demand to interface with the consumer and verify their own identity. And my guess is this is, might get smoothed out more in the comment period because there is a real concern about these third-party apps and services generating almost like autom an automated flood of requests. So uh, the, 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 the AG gets it. There's been some guidance. I'd like to maybe see that guidance flushed out a little bit more. Um, Another one, which again, the theme we've talked about in a few of these podcasts is, you know, what has California co-opted or, or taken over or required on a website? Uh, this was a little surprising. So in, in subsection 315, in discussion of requests to opt out uh, under A, the regs appear to require, again, as we expected, two or more methods, but it specifies that it has to be a, quote, interactive web form. All right, what that means is, a company can't just rely on, I guess, an email and the hotline. It's got to actually create on its website one of these interactive HTML web forms or some other form to take in the information to trigger the request to opt out. So, you know, again, this is conscription of a company's web designers, additional costs, um, and, and making the choice for the California or the, or the CCPA-facing business about what it has to do. So, Steve, another sort of word we've seen a lot in these regs or phrase has been this idea of a two-step, this two-step concept. Can you uh, help us understand what that is in these regs? Sure. And th we see in several places in the regulations um, where the regulator, the attorney general, is looking for a clear delineation between the consumer's request to e elect uh, a right versus the actual execution of it. And that's effectively what this two-step process is all about. Uh, and so the first, we see this uh, in one spot for, with the request to delete personal information. And the first step, the consumer submits the request. The business then confirms receipt of it within 10 days. And the second step is the consumer separately confirming the choice to delete. And I, I, I envision that this came from... Um, a motivation to make sure that consumers are not accidentally and permanently deleting their personal information where they didn't intend it. So, the, and in order to prepare or uh, to avoid that, to put on businesses the the burden of creating a, essentially a, a divide between electing to execute the request and then actually carrying it out. We see this similar two-step opting in, two-step process for opting in to the sale of personal information. Now this happens after a consumer has elected 
to opt out of the sale of personal information. Uh, so when that happens and there's a opt-in to consent to the sale of personal information, your first step is to uh, the consumer makes the request and then a separate confirmation of their choice. And then we also see that again for the consent required for collecting and processing personal information of consumers under the age of 18, which happens uh, by the parent or guardian. Uh, in, in step one, that uh, consumer's parent or guardian clearly opts in. And then the second step, uh, there's a confirmation of it. Thanks. And I think that might be the, the two-step for consumers might be consumers under 13, I think. Yeah, no, that's the, the consumers under 13 for the minors uh, provision. Right, yeah. so, so one other um, question we've been getting a fair amount of is, okay, for, for companies that engage in direct marketing, uh, when they've signed up a customer, they sometimes will say, look, refer a friend. We can give you a benefit if you refer a friend or they just ask for it. Hey, do you know anybody else? If you like our product, someone else who you might want to recommend to receive our product. So we've called that concept the refer a friend. We were kind of hoping there was going to be some guidance in here about that. I think like a magic eye picture, you can see what you want in these regs. Uh, but it, there does appear to be some guidance in Section 305D, which does talk about you know, if the business does not collect directly from consumers, it doesn't need to provide this notice at collection. I mean, it's almost tautological, right? If I'm not collecting from a consumer, I don't need to give them any notice. I might acquire it from some third-party source, um, or I might buy a list of some sort. And there's other things that will trigger, but I don't need to do the notice at the point of collection. If that happens, right, I can hold that data, of, that is, of, an, of a California consumer, but not someone who I have collected from. But I, before I can sell it, rather before the company can sell it, they need to do something, right? There's two options. One is they can go back to the source, you know, the person who's, who sold them or provided them or referred them that consumer's data and confirm with that person uh, that the consumer whose data you're ultimately holding has received the correct notices. Or alternatively, you know, because you're holding a consumer's data, you can go directly to them and before you sell it, again, with that broad definition of sale, you provide them with the notice of the right to opt out. So what this would seem to do is let companies use a refer a friend program to collect information on consumers, but then before they actually go ahead and sell, and again, with that broad meeting, they should reach back out to those new consumers or reach out for the first instance and give them the right to opt out. All right, uh, Joe, you know, we've had a lot of questions about security measures, right? Because the, the CCPA does require, in some instances, the transmittal of data on a consumer to that consumer. Is there any help in these regs about that concept? Well, I don't know if I would call it help, but there's certainly some discussion about it in these, in these regulations. Um, and, and this aspect of the draft regulations is, is particularly challenging. So we're talking here about how a business responds to a request from a consumer to know what data that business has uh, on the consumer. And in the draft regulation, we're talking here about um, uh, Section 313, it requires reasonable security measures. So a business shall use reasonable security measures when transmitting personal information to the consumer. That phrase is not defined. That's a phrase that um, our listeners will uh, uh, be familiar with in that other aspects of the CCPA talk about reasonable security measures. There's a private right of action for a data breach caused by an absence of reasonable security measures. Does the use of reasonable security measures here 
mean the same thing as it does over there? Um, in, if so, that, that's, it's not defined in that other provision under the CCPA. So I think we need to keep our eye uh, on this and, and, you know, practically speaking, think about, you know, how, how will this work if the consumer requests the information be returned by mail as the CCPA appears to authorize? Staying in that same section, there is also uh, a language uh, that says a business in responding to a request to know shall not at any time disclose a consumer's social security number, driver's license number, or a handful of other highly sensitive personal information. Well, you know, it's not clear from these draft regulations. Does that mean that business cannot disclose that information to the consumer, him or herself? Or does it mean to a third party? Uh, it, it, it's not clear how far that prohibition extends, and I imagine that there'll be a fair amount of comment on this in the next uh, six to eight weeks. Um, you know, perhaps you can transmit it so long as it's redacted. We'll have to see uh, what emerges in the back and forth uh, now before these are final. All right, so I think, uh, Steve and Joe, those are the highlights of what we saw in actually reading the regs, right? And again, that comes from our conversations with folks who are, who are struggling or, or are planning to comply with the CCPA as the sort of hot topics that we're on the lookout for. Steve, I mean, this notice of proposed rulemaking, though, contains a lot of other nuggets about what's going to happen in California. Can you help us understand what the highlights of those are? Sure. So with the notice of proposed rulemaking, we have this analysis and assessment of basically the impact that the CCPA has on the state of California, and including the AG's own office. And the notice uh, gives us some... Uh, basically a, a peek behind the curtain, so to speak, and, and, and tells us that the AG's office will be hiring uh, 23 um, new full-time positions and experts consultants to assist the office with implementing and enforcing the CCPA. Whether that will be enough to, uh, in addition to the staff that they already have, uh, you know, time will tell. Uh, but already the AG is ramping up and preparing uh, for um, you know, having a larger staff to assist it with implementing and enforcing the CCPA. And I know that there have been actions, and in particular, um, a recent new filing or, or new proposed legislation in California to create like a separate uh, privacy enforcer uh, that's beyond, that's more specific than just the AG's office. So we'll see what happens in the f future, but uh, it's already resulting in increased staff at the AG's office. In addition, these assessments, they, they tell us, and, and this is what justifies the AG's actions. That's why it's in the, the notice. It says that the, the AG's office estimates the cost of compliance of the CCPA over the next 10 years will be uh, half a billion dollars to $16.5 billion over the next 10 years. That's an incredibly broad range, uh, almost to the point where it's like hard to guess, or it is a guess. It's speculation as to what the impact will be. And um, I don't know if that even includes the cost of class actions and, and litigation related to uh, data breaches or just generally regarding uh, rights conferred and, and created under the CCPA. And, and another interesting stat, uh, the Attorney General's Office and the report on which it relies, it says that the estimated cost of small businesses to implement the CCPA is 25000 and then 1,500 annually to maintain. 
I am not sure if that's uh, accurate for small businesses or not. Um, it seems a little low. The estimate for larger businesses is 75000 to implement and 2500 annually to maintain. Again, those numbers seem a little low. But who knows if this process will be automated in the near future. You know, privacy tech is fast becoming a thing. So, uh, you know, we'll have to see if that those estimates uh, pan out to be true. Thanks so much, Steve. Thanks, Steve and Jack. And, and just wrapping it up here, we encourage our listeners to check out these regulations, uh, the notice of proposed rulemaking, and the initial statement of reasons, all of which are available on the Attorney General's website. Thanks, everyone. You've been listening to Carlton Fields' podcast series with Jack Clavy, Joe Swanson, and Steve Blickensturfer. To learn more about our cybersecurity and data privacy practice, visit carltonfields.com. This podcast is intended for general information and educational purposes only and should not be relied on as if it were advice about a particular fact situation. The distribution of this podcast is not intended to create, and receipt of it does not constitute an attorney-client relationship with Carlton Fields. Thanks for listening. Thank you.